0: there, thanks for tuning in to St John's Ashfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. challenge, of course, is that the answers to those two different questions can, from time to time, become incompatible. Who I am, who I want to be, and what I want to do can intersect with who you are and what you want to do in incompatible ways. And so who we are becomes contested and difficult. They can be grand, terrible, newsworthy breakdowns of communities and groups. One nation regards its borders as very extensive, including other island states, for example. That's an identity issue. Or they can be the everyday miseries of hurt feelings and cold shoulders in personal relationships. But the intersection of identity and community, it just is a negotiation that's happening all the time for every person and for every group. remember that this series has been based on the, the remarkable claim by Jesus that if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that includes how we navigate this intersection of identity and community. We have a made up word for how to manage that. It's the word atonement. It's made up because it's a put together word. It just is the at one meant, at one meant. It represents the great hope that the answer to the identity question is fundamentally compatible with the answer to the community question and that where there is a tear, Where there is a breach, there can be a repair. That unity and connection and oneness can be restored. And of course, nowhere is the issue of identity and community more pointed than in relation to God. Is it possible for you to be yourself and at the same time be profoundly united to God in communion? And what happens when the way I've constructed my identity has put me out of step with God? what are the options for atonement then and so this evening as we come uh, as richard uh, mentioned to the close of our series unlearning untruths we're going to look at the fundamental question of atonement fundamental because the only alternative to atonement is just endless breaking apart chopping off moving apart we're going to start by looking at atonement in general and then second we'll look at atonement in the gospel And then finally, we'll look at what underlies this gospel atonement. So first then, atonement in general. Uh, I suspect that every one of us knows uh, what it is to be wronged. We've we've all been hurt by someone uh, at some time or other, as well as what it is to wrong another person. We've, We've been on both ends of that stick, from minor acts of just forgetfulness or impoliteness or selfishness all the way through to profoundly damaging acts and omissions, people hurt each other with monotonous regularity. The thing about wrongdoing is that it creates what I'm gonna suggest that you think about as a blob, a moral blob, a spiritual lump of stuff that just sits there until something is done about it. It's objective and it's real. And so the only way to deal with it is with something objective and real. It can't be pretended or imagined away. That's what wrongdoing does. It creates a new lump of stuff, a moral blob. And in that moment, at that point, there really are only three options for dealing with the blob. The first is punishment. Punishment. Uh, there's something uh, right about punishment as a means of atonement. The, the, the moral blob can be seen as analogous to a debt that is accrued by the person. And then the punishment that the wrongdoer endures is a payment of that debt. We use this language about crimes, don't we? And the fact that a criminal has a a debt to society because of the criminal act that they've done, um, which after they've endured their punishment, they have paid their debt to society. This language makes sense. And there's, there's a real upside to that. It means that there is an external and objective reckoning for the wrong that has been done. And that the wrongdoer, having paid their debt to society, is able to know with clarity and certainty that the blob that they created by their wrongdoing, it's gone. It's been removed. they paid their debt. But notice that on the one hand, the punishment model satisfies justice. It's very, very important that courts are not kind, isn't it? The the job of the court is not to sort of say, oh, well, you you know, I I understand. It's okay that you just shot that person. They probably, you know, you had a bad day. No. The job of the court is to execute justice. That's what we want from our, our public justice system. The punishment model satisfies justice on the one hand, but on the other hand, it rarely re-establishes personal relationship. The hurt of the wrongdoing leaves a relational scar which punishment is ill-suited to healing. So when wrong is done, first option, punishment. Second option is a gift of sacrifice. This, I think, tends to be the other end of the atonement spectrum. Uh, If you visit my apartment and there are flowers on the kitchen bench, you can be reasonably sure that I've made a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, Once every 15 or or 20 years, I will do something dumb or hurtful. And I will realize that I've done something dumb and hurtful and that I need to make up for it. And so I'll I'll visit the local florist on the way home and and buy a gift. Um, I don't know if you buy flowers much. Golly, they've gone up in price a lot since I started making atonement, you know, years ago. Um, it, it, it's such an interesting thing that giving a gift of sacrifice works, and it's interesting to think about why it works. Why does giving a gift like like flowers make up for and remove the blob? That exists. Why does it work like that? Uh, I think it's something uh, in the way that the gift, something uh, fresh and beautiful, represents the way I want the relationship to be instead of the way that I've made it by my wrongdoing, which has become stained and strained. And at the same time, there needs to be cost. To me in it. So there's not a trivial enactment of the way I want things to be. There has to be a genuine investment by me in it. If I get my EA to order the flowers and pay for them on the company account, that's not going to make much of an atoning difference, is it? So you can see how the gift of atonement, sorry, the gift of sacrifice atones at a personal level. But at the same time, can you see how there are dangers to this? Especially at the public level? This can get dangerously close to paying someone off, a a bribe to overlook wrongdoing instead of a genuine making up for wrongdoing. Which leads then to the third atonement option. Uh, We've looked at a punishment, we've looked at a gift of sacrifice. The third option is what you might call pure forgiveness. In, In the first case, punishment, the wrongdoer bears in his or herself. Uh, the price of wrongdoing since the punishment should fit the crime, right? We're pretty clear that that we don't want to have punishment that's that's either too big or too little for the crime. The punishment should fit the crime. There's an evening out. In the second option, the gift of sacrifice, the issue of evening out is a little bit muted, actually. There doesn't have to be an exact correspondence between the gift and the wrongdoing. Rather, it's representative. Although there, there does need to be some cost, some effort that's put in. But think about the third option, pure forgiveness. When there's pure forgiveness, it's not the wrongdoer who pays the price of removing the moral blob that's been created by the wrongdoing. It's the person who's wronged. Imagine uh, you visit my place and you see the flowers in a vase and they're really, really beautiful flowers course, and uh, they're in a really, really beautiful and really, really expensive, irreplaceable antique Ming dynasty vase. Uh, Not that I don't have one of those. And you accidentally knock the vase over. What happens next? You you could be punished, which I guess means, um, you know, find the value of the vase and then some um, additional damages, as it's called at law. Uh, or you could send me a card apologizing for breaking the vase and a, maybe a gift voucher for a meal at you know a nice restaurant. Um, or there's a third option. I can say to you, you know what? It's okay. It was only an accident. Don't worry about it. Do you see what's, what's happening then in pure forgiveness? I'm the one that's wronged. There's, there's something that's taken place there. And, and actually, let's turn the heat up on the illustration, right? It was just an accident. What happens if it wasn't just an accident? We're having a really heated argument and you saw the vase and you thought, right, I know that that vase is really, pre- bang, it's precious and I'm going to smash it and suck on that. And I still say, actually, let's just draw a line under this it's okay. You see, in pure forgiveness, it's the person who's been wronged that bears the cost of the wrongdoing and removing the moral blob. You, you might, uh, I might seek to replace the vase at my own expense, or I might do without the vase and the pleasure it gives me. But either way, in pure forgiveness, it's the wronged person takes into their own self and experience what's necessary to remove the blob. That's why um, forgiveness uh, in the New Testament literally is letting go, actually. It's a very interesting phrase. The, the word that we have translated for forgiveness is to let go, to, to, because forgiveness is simply and purely letting go, letting go of the sin, letting go of the right to retribution that it gives you, and overcoming the move to vengeance. So they're your options. There aren't any others, actually. There's punishment, there's a gift, and there's forgiveness. They're the options when wrong is done and a moral blob is created. They're the only ways that you can remove it. Um, notice how our typi- our culture typically handles this. It seems to me that um, we've confused the public and the private, the political and the personal, and I guess because of some Social commentators are prone to say these days uh, that's because the personal is the political. And so the punishment option is increasingly the go-to option, that when someone does something wrong or says something wrong or fails to say something right, the instant call is for punishment, punishment which comes in the form of being cut off and cast away through being cancelled. But but as I said, um, punishment rarely achieves reconciliation. It's why there's so little resilience of community at the moment. Uh, We as a society just don't have the resources to be able to achieve genuine, full atonement. But what our culture finds more and more difficult, God achieves with enormous, beautiful, great grace. And so point two, atonement in the gospel. Because what I want you to notice is this the atonement that God wins in the cross of Christ combines and draws together and knits and kneads into each other all three of these options. All three modes of atonement at the same time in the same moment. Let me show you how that works. You see, first, the cross of Christ is Jesus bearing the punishment for our sins. Uh, We see this uh, perhaps most profoundly, I think, in the way that Jesus Uh, speaks of drinking the cup that is before him. He desperately wishes that the cup be taken away from him, but he desires something even more than that, to honour his Father in heaven. And so he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And the metaphor of the cup is about the wrath of God, the the literally staggering wrath of God. Uh, That is uh, the wrath of God, which which makes you stagger and eventually to, to collapse and fall. In in the Apostle Paul's writings, uh, this is found in the language of justification, which uh, actually has its home in the law court, where the just penalty for our sins falls on Jesus Christ. And it's crucial to do two things with this truth, neither ever to let go of it nor to hold onto it alone. First, never let go of the fact that Jesus' death is a wrath-bearing, penal substitution for our sins. Uh, There are some um, that think that the idea of Jesus bearing the penalty of sin is somehow unworthy of God. Uh, There there are some who would say that this notion of penal substitutionary atonement is distasteful. But what's so important about it is that it is only penal atonement. It's only penalty and punishment-bearing atonement that satisfies justice. Apart from penalties we noticed before, there is a deep sense of injustice, of corruption, of the wrongdoer getting away at some level with their wrongdoing. So it's, it's critical that we hold on to penal atonement. And right at the same time, second, it's crucial to see that this is not the only way that the New Testament speaks about the atoning death of Jesus. And that although it is true, it is not the whole truth. And it needs the other truths to complete it, which leads to the second point. You see, It's not only the case that the cross of Christ is the bearing of the punishment that we deserve, it's also the case that the cross of Christ is a gift of sacrifice. Um, The idea of sacrifice uh, turns out to be just one of the most foundational, common, profound human experiences. Anthropologists study it. It goes to every culture at every age as far back as we know. It's deep. It's right into the core of the Old Testament. Uh, We read uh, in Leviticus 17, for example, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. One of the really interesting things uh, about the idea of sacrifice is that it's not really explained in the Bible. Why does blood make atonement? And we're not not given a clear answer to that. Uh, We know that the sacrificial animal has to be a high-quality one, right? It's not some mangy, weak, feeble, three-legged sort of, you know, runt. It's got to be spotless and pure. And that this high quality makes a real difference. That's exactly what we see in Jesus, uh, who uh, the Apostle Peter describes as the one who ransoms us. He says, not with perishable things. And I love what he writes next. This is one of my favorite verses. Uh, not with, perishable things means not with crappy things. And what comes next is not with crappy things like silver and gold. right? Uh, that is, not with crappy things like the most valuable things that human beings have. No, no, no. That's not going to atone. It doesn't matter how much silver and gold you give to God. No, it's but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Um, Silver and gold just aren't going to cut it with God. It's got to be something really precious, really valuable, really significant as a gift in order to make atonement. And that's what Jesus' blood does. And so as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved us. And what he did to love us was to give himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, he makes a gift to God of himself, utterly and totally. Now, leads to the third way that the cross makes atonement. See, the cross is also spoken of in the New Testament as a victory. Um, it's a bearing of punishment, that's a law court idea. It's a sacrifice, a gift offering to, to God, uh, that's a temple idea and then it's also a victory or a battlefield idea. And I want to draw the link between this idea of victory and what we've called pure forgiveness. You see, pure forgiveness is also a victory. It's a victory over vengeance. Uh, One of the great tragedies that we see in our world is the way that vengeance creates a cycle of violence. We're not uh, particularly familiar, I think, in our culture with the idea of blood feuds, uh, but elsewhere, in other times and places, They can last for generations. One family wrongs another. That brings in every member of both families, and from then on, their job is to ensure that the family evens up the score, and then some. And a blood feud can go on for generation and generation. That vengeance, that is a victory of evil. That cycle of violence, that vain attempt to overcome evil with evil... Well, that's just a victory for evil. What happens in pure forgiveness is that you overcome evil with good. It's a victory to do that. A victory of a very particular sort, what we call a moral victory. To rise above it. To absorb the pain into yourself. And to say, enough, we're not going around again. We're going to stop. And that's what the death of Jesus on the cross is, a victory over the evil one. Whereas the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus wins the victory because instead of evil winning by provoking a fight fire with fire kind of approach, Jesus absorbs the fire himself. He takes into himself the pain and he extinguishes it in his own self. Now by now you should be reaching breaking point, like right, we've had a question time now. you really some fierce questions like, yeah, right, Andrew, there may be only a limited number of ways to make atonement rather than letting wrongs divide us and letting identity destroy community. There's only punishment and sacrifice and forgiveness. Yep, I would buy that. And the Bible does speak about the cross of Christ in those three ways, actually, as a bearing of punishment, as an offering of sacrifice, of absorbing the cost of forgiveness and winning a great victory, a moral victory. But how does that work for us? And how does it work for God? What is it that means that that death thousands of kilometres away, thousands of years away, culturally as far from us as can possibly be imagined, how can that be the atonement for you now? Point three. Uh, What we're getting to here is really deep bedrock. This is right where Christianity gets all the way down to. Because the reason that the death of Jesus counts in precisely these ways for you and me tonight, in our lives, our actual wrongs, the actual sins that you do, not, not, not the trivial stuff, the, the, the hatred, the, the, the violence in your heart, the way that you just diss people, the selfishness, the real stuff. The reason that the death of Jesus atones for your sins is a direct consequence of the fundamental truths of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Trinity and Incarnation. By the Trinity, what I want to highlight is that when Jesus acts, when he speaks and when he heals and when he dies, he does so as God himself. In other words, it's precisely because he is God the Son, that he can stand in for God. When Jesus forgives, that's God forgiving you, not presuming as some third party to excuse someone else who's done wrong. When Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice, that's God himself offering himself. So it's a perfect sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. When Jesus endures punishment, That is God enduring his own punishment so that the reality of Jesus bearing the punishment for our sins becomes very much like pure forgiveness, actually. And what's so important uh, to see in this um, is uh, the answer to the question of those who challenge the idea of the, the atoning death of Jesus by saying, how does God hitting an innocent third party mean that you're atoned for? Uh, have you have you come across this problem? Have you have someone put this to you? It was within the first year that I was a Christian that my dad said this to me. He had been part of a church when he was growing up in Hungary. Um, he, he kind of had, for various reasons, had um, not continued that when he came to Australia. I grew up not going to church. I was invited on a youth camp actually over the Christmas holidays and came to Christ. And I went back home and I announced to my parents, yes, and they went no, and I went yes. And dad said, well, yeah, really? Let's try this one. Say your sister did something wrong and I punished you for it. Does that mean that she's in the right now and okay? That wouldn't be so fair, would it? How does hitting an innocent third party make someone else right? I could see how it might work the other way around, actually, uh, but I wasn't sure about that that way. Um, But do you see what's wrong with the question? Yes, Jesus is innocent, but he's not a third party. When Jesus drinks the cup, that's God bearing his own wrath. In other words, that's God externalising, visibly, the internal struggle of pure forgiveness. When people challenge the idea of atonement, uh, some even describe it horrendously as divine child abuse. All it really shows is their own lack of understanding of the fundamentals of the Christian gospel. So atonement depends fundamentally on the Trinity and likewise, secondly, atonement depends fundamentally on the incarnation. And what I want to highlight here is that it's precisely because Jesus became one of us that he can stand in for us. The Word became flesh, the eternal Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, not a creature, of one being with the Father, he adopted, added, took to himself human nature. And really importantly, not a specific person. It wasn't like Jesus, the God the Son, uh, came to earth and, and sort of possessed an already existing person. No, he took on humanity in general so that the person of Jesus is the person of the eternal son. Or or you might even go so far as to say the personality of Jesus is the personality of the eternal son. And what that means is that because he is the second Adam, the great representative human being, when he drinks the cup of God's wrath, that's you drinking it in him. There's no more left for you to drink. It's gone. It's extinguished. It's empty. When he offers a sacrifice of himself to God, pure and spotless, that's you offering what you should offer to God but can't. He's pure and spotless. We are half-baked and grubby. But in him, we offer a spotless sacrifice to God. And when Jesus wins the great cosmic moral victory over sin and death, that's You winning that victory in him. A victory you could never achieve on your own. Do you see what I'm trying to show you here? Without the Holy Trinity, the death of Jesus would have no power. Without the gracious incarnation, the death of Jesus would have no relevance. The reality of who God is and who Jesus is, are the great questions of the gospel of the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The gospel of grace doesn't work if there's no trinity and no incarnation. And so so just take that thought one step further. That's why no other religion or philosophy has a gospel of grace. Right, do you see that? The gospel of grace won't work other than Trinity and incarnation. And it's why no other religion or philosophy has a gospel of grace because they don't have Trinity or incarnation. All they can offer is teaching words from God that just tell us what to be and do and in the end crush us. In Jesus Christ, oh yes, we have words from God, but we have so much more than that. We have actions by God, actions for us, gifts to us that are just and pure And gracious. And it all depends on the great truth of who God is in Himself and who God is for us, Trinity and Incarnation. Okay, I'm going to pause there just uh, for one more question time. Uh, If people would like to um, uh, clarify something, ask a question. Uh, We have the Lord's Supper, so this is going to be a limited um, availability question time. Uh, because we do want to finish the service before 8.30. So, but if there's any, any questions we want to ask about that. Crystal clarity, that's great. Uh, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think there are times to think And question and understand and probe. That's exactly right. And there are other times to just love and worship. One of the ways that we worship is by saying the creed uh, almost every week at church, whether the Apostles' Creed or, as we'll say tonight, the Nicene Creed. um, What I want you to do is just notice why we say the creed. We say the creed because the church got it right Because what do the creeds say to us? They say to us and we say to each other and we say to ourselves and we hear others and we take our stand again on Trinity and incarnation. Who God is as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Who Jesus is as God the Son who took on flesh and became one of us. because it's trinity and incarnation that make possible the great atonement for sin, where justice is satisfied, a perfect sacrifice is offered that restores relationship, and a great moral victory is won for us over the enemies which stalk our lives, and we can know peace in our consciences. You are right, you are clean, you are forgiven in Christ, in his cross. It's grace. Praise, praise God for his grace. Let's pray. Our great and gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift our hearts to you in worship and praise and love to have done and never could do ourselves, that you have made atonement. And we pray that you would um, write this deeply in our hearts, that we would know the reality of justice having been done on us, of the cleansing that comes from a pure gift offered to you and the victory won in pure forgiveness. And so live free and live clean and live in love for you and love for our neighbour. And we ask these things in the name of our great Saviour, Jesus. Amen.